0: Hello, and welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. My name is Father Justin Matthews, and this podcast is inspired by entrepreneurs, founders, faith leaders, innovators, volunteers, visionaries from every walk of life. They are the social venturers, those who crave the entrepreneurial adventure of moving beyond charity to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. Social leaders are the true leaders among us, who forge sustainable solutions to solve our community's most tangled problems. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm Father Justin Matthews. And real quickly, before we begin, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services. We're a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. And if you're inspired by what you hear on today's show, and I know you're going to be, you're going to want to learn how to lead with greater creativity, authenticity, and social impact by checking out thesocialleader.org. That's my new online e-course, The Social Leader Essentials. And when you enroll in this course, you're going to get access to over two and a half hours of leadership training that's going to help you adopt a social entrepreneurial mindset, help you root out bias in yourself and in your team as well as help you embrace a trauma-informed and strength-based leadership style. And the coolest part about the whole thing is that all of the proceeds from this course are used to fuel the social and trauma therapy programs at Reconciliation Services. So go to thesocialleader.org today and check it out. Well, I am really excited to welcome to the show a friend from Kansas City, and a guy who's just doing incredible work, particularly at The Grooming Project. His name is Jared Sanderson, Director of Housing and Programs for The Grooming Project. Jared, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Father Justin. I appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, real quick, before we jump in, I'm going to share this website, thegroomingproject.org, thegroomingproject.org. And if you are watching online right now on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you pick this up, you're definitely welcome to comment and chat. We'll see if we can bring you in the show and if you have questions. Now, Jared, you're not the founder of The Grooming Project. <laughs> Correct. Because I'm pretty sure her name is Natasha. And we were hoping to have Natasha and you on today, but we were able to get you on. I know that things have been so busy. And I think Natasha's moving or something as well. But we need to know about The Grooming Project and we need to know more about you. So, Introduce us a little bit to the Grooming Project, if you would.
1: Sure, I'm a, a consolidation prize today. Um, and funny story, uh, I actually was on the the founding board member, so in some sense, in a sliver of a way, uh, I have some I have some ownership of the the founding as well. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Epic, the Grooming Project. Um, Epic is empowering the parent to empower the child, uh, and that's the actual name. The Grooming Project was intended to be one of the workforce programs uh, within Epic, and then it really took off. Um, So now we have a bit of a um, a problem with the recognition of it, because that name is actually more popular than Epic, which was the original name. So um, if you see Epic or The Grooming Project, it is a reference to the same thing. Um, The Grooming Project is essentially a job training program um, for what is primarily homeless single moms. Um, That was the initial target group. Um that's still mostly who we serve, uh but the basic idea is that um there's really not a whole lot of opportunity without livable without a living wage uh there are some ways that people can find stability and happiness and hope uh but quite often the job is um the way that we can get there uh it's the way that we can guarantee that we can get our basic needs met and so um Natasha tells this story better than I do because it's hers uh but I, I've heard it enough <laughs> that I think I can accurately capture it. Um, she was working uh, in a shelter, I believe, and was the, um, the workforce coordinator of that shelter. And, you know, she was having success helping uh, some of their women find jobs. Um, but what she kept finding was that they were minimum wage jobs. And the financial status was changing on paper, but the life situation wasn't really changing much because the jobs didn't pay enough. Um, So it was the same circumstance, just kind of one octave up the economic scale, but it was all the same problems, all the same challenges and no real solutions. Uh, So she started thinking about what would be, what's a way to connect people to living wages and people who typically have um, educations that maybe they either didn't finish high school or only finished high school. Um, Possibly they have some um, criminal record in their background, things that tend to keep people from accessing uh, the job market. And uh, her mom was a groomer. Um, her mom was a, a dog groomer. And Natasha tells the story that she actually didn't like the dogs, uh, but she ran the books. <laughs>
0: and so... Wait, wait, wait hold on, know, hold on, we got to stop Natasha a- <laughs> Natasha founded the dog, pro- yeah. the dog grooming project doesn't That's, really like going to kill me for saying say that
1: um uh, let me i'm going to rephrase that uh, <laughs> the
0: dogs weren't her favorite part let's say let's say that okay, uh, okay but her mom was a dog yes. groomer somewhere in Kansas City she was doing the books yes. she liked, she liked the numbers better than the dogs but then later in life she's running the job vocation program realizes that there aren't enough good jobs and so she starts the this dog grooming training or how did she come to that as the logical next step
1: Yeah, that was. uh, So her her family was in a different state and uh, her mom was calling and saying, like, I just I can't find groomers. I just can't Mm -hmm. find them. And Natasha knew what they made uh, because she was around it her whole childhood. So um, what does a dog
0: groomer make? I mean, can you share that? Like generally in the market, what, what do you make if you're a dog groomer? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, it's kind of there. It just depends on full time, part time. But most uh, groomers coming out, uh, so when they first get into the market, they're making anywhere from 30 to 40,000 a year. Um, and then it, a lot of it's based on throughput. So as you increase your speed, uh, it's it's pretty common that people who are in that field two or three years in are making fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year.
0: Wow, I mean that's that's incredible to go from uh, you know if you're living as a, a single woman or a single mom in a homeless shelter to to come out within a couple of years make forty fifty thousand dollars a year on average. That's I mean that's incredible. So I can see why she wanted to focus in on that, even <laughs> though she didn't love dogs. So so carry on with the story. What's the next evolution of of the forming of of Epic and and the next steps? Well, the
1: the dog grooming piece is its own specific industry. Um, there isn't a, a formal certification, uh, but we, I mean, we were really, and she was driving for quality um, to get uh, other salons to hire. Obviously, quality was important. So forming out the dog grooming piece, um, she had her mom's expertise. She had, um, she found some groomers. And so the first uh, iteration of this, um, Natasha's background isn't in um, social service, And so that first iteration, it became very clear very quickly that the dog grooming training was one piece of this. But the stability, the general stability of someone's life, um, it's we have this idea and it's a bit of a meme at this point that you can just work hard. And if you work hard, you can overcome anything. um, Mm -hmm. But it's really difficult to focus on a skill that's going to pay off a year or two from now when you're not sure where you're going to eat, uh, what you're going to eat or where you're going to sleep tonight. And it's, it's yeah. so easy for us outside looking in to say, well, if you just focused for six to 12 months,
0: right. Uh, but how if do you, you work harder, man? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, right. As if there aren't any other barriers like transportation or any other COVID yeah. for that matter.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, that was the, the, these two pieces ended up coming together. Uh, this what is a, kind of a conventional um, social service side: housing, child care, transportation. Those are the three big pillars. If those things weren't there, then it was just a matter of time before one of them caused the capacity to actually focus on the job training to go away. Uh, so that's that's more or less the program structure at this point is. We're working initially to try to help stabilize the living situation um, and then we start moving into uh, we're gonna focus now on the the actual job training the vocational training and try to get somebody ready um, and try to keep the rest of this in place until the living wage job is attained
0: now you said that epic um, really was meant to be kind of the parent and that they were the idea was there were going to be multiple Kind of vertical, so to speak, that we're creating living wage jobs for folks. Are there are there any other businesses or models or or any other things that are planned right now or that are ongoing right now? We haven't. We the the
1: dog or the pet grooming industry just exploded. <laughs> so, did it really?
0: Even yeah. with COVID, I mean, I would imagine. I mean, that's a very high touch. You have to take your dog somewhere. I mean, did COVID affect the grooming industry? It it really
1: hasn't. I mean, I it obviously it has in the same way. I mean, on the margins, but um, there were multiple cities and municipalities that i that identified pet grooming as an essential service. Wow! Um, because people were. I mean, we yeah we were we were trying to balance that because we had. Um, I mean, obviously our concerns for our students, um, right? And and more so for our students. I mean, obviously for our pet parents, our customers too. But it's easier to isolate them from each other and from us. It's it's really difficult to train somebody to groom a dog um, without being within six feet of them <laughs> for 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, with that, but the actual, the need um, and the demand, it, if anything, it went up. I, I think more, I think we're going to find more people actually got pets in that stretch because they were home. Um, that's an
0: interesting observation i actually hadn't thought about that that the demand for pet services might have gone up just because people are home and you know you can take your dog to work so to speak so okay so if i understand that the grooming project that that natasha started you are the director of housing and programs so underneath the grooming project and kind of epic generally you all have a pet salon where people like me can i mean i use i have a, a dog who sheds non-stop his name is kenai I mean, this dog is like it's like Falcor, you know. Do you remember from Never Ending Story? Imagine if Falcor just constantly shed in your house. That's Kenai. So Falcor, I used to bring him in um, to your location on Troost where people were both being trained as well as you were doing the dog grooming. Yep. So that's the salon. But then there's also there's also another salon that doesn't have the training in it as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, that's in Lee Summit. So, okay, um, the intent for that was some of our graduates um, interested in opening their own salons. We we use that as a site for them to get the experience running a business. Okay, um, and so I think in the future, as we replicate, um, we are we're likely just going to combine those two models um, for a number of reasons. I mean, I think we've we we're pretty successful out there. I mean, we like the space, so we don't have any intention of. Um, of ending it. But I think moving forward, we may combine those two, the salon idea and the school idea into one central location uh, just for the sake of, of combining resources. Um, and I think it's it's helpful for our students to have um, graduates in that same room who are training on a different aspect of this right. industry. So yeah, I think in, in theory, it made sense to separate them. And we've had, I think the success that we were looking for Um, but moving forward, I think it it makes more, I think we've learned enough to know that we can combine them and still be successful.
0: Okay. So I have to ask the question though. So generally speaking, and we're going to move on past just the grooming project, but I really want to get the understanding of this because this is a social venture. This is a business, but it has a purpose. It has a mission beyond just dog grooming. And I want to get to that in a second, but let's focus again a little bit on the structure. So you've got folks that are training underneath professional groomers. You've got a salon. Those are being combined or are combined in the future. And anybody can come in. They can even go to the website, thegroomingproject.org. They can make an appointment. But also, if I need a job and I want to get trained, I noticed that that on your website, you can actually go there and apply to be a part of the program. So first of all, is it for women only? Because I've I've heard you mostly talk about moms. Or, And second of all, like kind of be honest, like how many dog groomers do we need in one city? And how yeah. many can you really train at one time? Like, isn't there a kind of a cap on the business model just based on that fact? How does that work?
1: Yeah. So, um, first question first, the, the, the target population is, um, moms with young children. Um, we do have some males who come through the program. Um, so are certainly welcome to apply too. um, I think that, yeah, that's, so that, that, that one's a quicker one to answer. Um, your second question about market saturation, that is definitely one of our considerations. Um, the feedback that we've, we've got some great partners, uh, in part because we're training groomers that then get picked up by other salons, uh, the pet co's and pet smarts of the world, including some of the locally owned salons. And so they're, they're, um, willing to share some of their market analysis with us about what the market can bear. And, um, it looks like we, we aren't going to be close to saturating that market, um, even if we quadrupled the number of students that we were
0: um, training so and graduating. Your students are getting hired by Petco, by big national brands here in the city, but throughout the region or other places as well? Where are they getting hired?
1: It's mostly here in the city, uh, just and primarily for transportation reasons. Um, it's mostly, the, yeah, I mean, we've got, a, we've got a really good group of salon partners, that we work with um and they i mean petco and PetSmart smart are really the two that are the most helpful on the uh just the market analysis side and yeah i think i think we're it, every indication is that we're a long ways away from ever coming close to saturating that market because they're the like pet especially dogs um it's almost i mean it seems like the millennial generation is in part replacing um, children with with animals, <laughs> and so we have a, like a growing um, of, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, okay, so I,
0: let me ask this question, and I want to get the the next place I want to go is actually to talk about the students because they're the reason this thing exists. But are you all partnering with veterinarians? Are you partnering with product companies and putting out your own food or grooming supplies? Or I mean, how much of a business is this? You know, is it is it multifaceted like that?
1: That is that is definitely the next. uh, That's part of the next phase is uh, creating um, tangential products within that industry that are uh, because I think uh, and I I know Father Justin. This I mean this is going to be right up your alley. I mean there there are ways to create jobs within the the creation of those products even if it's not us owning it. Um, It's just us distributing it or or putting our name on it. I mean there are. There are definitely ways to link up new job opportunities, and that's ultimately the goal is to create as many job opportunities as we can. That And the other piece of it is that living wage piece. And that that's yeah. where it gets a bit difficult with some of those other industries is that if we're not controlling it, it's really difficult to ensure that somebody makes the wage and is treated fairly.
0: Yeah. I mean, gosh, we have over at Reconciliation Services, we have over 5,300 clients a year, unduplicated individuals and 99% of those are living below the federal poverty line. So just imagine, you know, you're a you're a single mom with a couple of kids and you're living on less than $24,000 a year. I mean, it's impossible or maybe you're slapping together two part-time jobs, no benefits, no PTO, to have one good job, full-time, good decent wage with benefits. I mean, that that reshapes family trees. I mean, that okay. changes director, dire, uh, trajectories for, for generations, really. Let me ask you a question. And again, if you're watching online and you want to ask a question, either about uh, social leadership, social venturing, or the grooming project, feel free to chime in. Um, but I want to ask you a question. We've had a couple of our clients from Reconciliation Services and our Reveal uh, Trauma and Depression Therapy Program, we've partnered with you all and we've had a couple of our um, young women have gone through and gotten jobs. And one of them I'm thinking of in particular, I don't have permission to use her name, but she became uh, a dog groomer early on, was one of the early graduates. Tell me about the the women that are coming, that are a part of the program. Is there sort of a, a, um, a story? Can you help us understand their lived experience and what this opportunity for a good full-time job means to them, Jared?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean it, it's it's obviously it's it, it's not a monolith, but um, just going on kind of the aggregate background, um I mean, we have pretty good data on that. and and we're we're generally talking about um, people who have lived um, their entire life in poverty. um, uh, so born into circumstances where um, things were unstable. Uh, the home environment was uh, was unstable, was changing pretty frequently. Um, generally a a pretty high propensity for uh, abuse and neglect, um, either by caretakers or by somebody else. Uh, We have a a lot of um, people who've been victims of domestic violence. Um, So, I mean, you're really just talking about kind of all of the the terrible things that can happen to someone are quite often in the background uh, of the people that we work with. Um, So we really try to focus on... um, people with younger children Um, when we, it's not that we don't accept um, people with older children. We do sometimes, but the priority is younger children in part because we want to, we want to try to help stabilize that environment um, while that child's still in kind of a pivotal um, developmental stage. Uh, But it really, it's a lot of trauma. It's a generational poverty. Um, That's probably a lot of the same things uh, that you see uh, with reconciliation services and the the people that you serve there.
0: Well, I, I, Can't imagine, you know, how amazing it would be if all of a sudden, if I was living in a in a women's shelter or a domestic violence shelter and I had my kids, and then all of a sudden I had the opportunity to come and have this career path, the sort of instant career path, but not just that, the instant community that comes from a work environment and a dignified work environment. What do you what do you all do about housing? I mean your title is, you know, Director of Housing and Programs. I mean somebody's living in a shelter, they have a job, but you know, shelters close during the day. What 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 do the ladies do for living and for transportation while they're studying? I mean, are you are you paying them so they can get an apartment even while they're studying? How does that work? Yeah, we we so we pay
1: a $500 a month stipend um for being in the program. Um and that's, I mean, that's obviously not, that, uh, that's the best that we can do. Um, and it's helpful. Um, the hope is that there's some form of other income um, for some of our, our moms that there isn't. It's that 500 that they have to figure out how to stretch. Uh, but that was 500 more than they were getting previously. So right. there's at least something to work with there. Um, the housing side there, um, this is kind of a two-part question. Uh, we are in the process of finishing a six-unit um, dorm uh, because we just, it's its just such a struggle sometimes to find uh, safe, affordable housing. And so that dorm will house six families at a time. Uh, we generally have student groups of 10 to 15, so um, it won't be everybody, but it's also generally the case that about half of our incoming students are okay on the housing side. They've got something that's safe, something that's stable. Um, okay for those individuals that, that, and and up to this point, it really is just patchwork. I mean, it really is just, every situation is different. We have some partner organizations um, that that are providing kind of a dual program where it's housing and um, treatment or support of something. Uh, Those organizations have been fantastic to work with. Uh, We have a couple of landlords who are friendly to the cause, Um, but it it really is just, uh, when people don't finish the program successfully, it's almost entirely because of housing disruptions.
0: So let me, there's a question that just came in from Jody. She says, do you have programs around trauma awareness and education for participants actually built in? You said you have partners.
1: We do. So our uh, the social service side, even though these the, the integration of the grooming and social services is crucial here, uh, the social service curriculum includes um, soft skill and social emotional development training. And that the first piece of that is a lot of deep dive into trauma, um, the impact that it can have on um, someone. And I mean, it's it's it always feels um, a bit strange to point that out or or feel like you're pointing out to somebody when you haven't experienced that yourself at all. Um, But it's I mean, there's always leaving that door open and expressing it in a way of um, this is your story. And it's up to you to decide how this fits for you. Um, that once that framework is there, that this is this is all positive and, and generative. Then, yeah, I mean, you can. That's one of the feed the consistent feedback points for graduates is that that soft skill training uh, really helped them identify the ways that their decision making had been changed by the circumstances they've been forced to live in, um, and how that could be harnessed in a way that just would that led to better possibilities for them.
0: Well, I want to make sure we get the website out there again before we move on to the next topic, but that's thegroomingproject.org. Jared, what's the biggest need that The Grooming Project has right now? I mean, you talked about the barriers of housing, but running an organization, even if it's a social enterprise, it still requires donors and fuel and volunteers, but what's your greatest need right now? How can people help? yeah i
1: mean i think it really if we go back to the three pillars of time talent and treasure um i mean we really do thrive on volunteers uh we get a lot of volunteer support um uh, that is that's always helpful um i think some some partnership um and expertise around some of those other social businesses i mean that's one of the reasons that we we haven't spun that off yet is that it's um I mean, we've we've tried, but we also have this big thing that we're trying to make sure we get right. And so, expertise in some of those other tangential industries would be great. And then I would be remiss if I didn't say um, money is always nice too. Uh, we are we're doing what we can to um, supplement this with the earned revenue from the social business, but uh, that support is always welcome. But uh, really, the uh, the expertise that we get. I mean, we have a great group of advisors that come from a number of industries. Uh, that give us a lot of really great guidance on how to position ourselves and maneuver ourselves in uh, what is um, at its core a for-profit space too, and that's I think a bit different.
0: <laughs> now, but then, you're set up as a 501c3 nonprofit, right? Yes, yes, okay. so we so are. Let's get into that because you people may not know that from the interview so far, but you and I have gotten to work together because you did some consulting and partnership with Reconciliation Services on uh, in another context on some of our. Um, social entrepreneurial work like Thelma's Kitchen and other things and our, and our trauma work. Um, social enterprises are emerging and they are this sort of blend of business and purpose. And it goes really far beyond sort of corporate social responsibility. Now, the title of this podcast and a lot of the people listening are themselves social leaders. They're people that are wanting to do social good in in the work that they're doing, they want to bring that kind of mentality, that social mindset to their work. Tell us what your definition is of a social enterprise like the grooming project. And what's the potential of, of this kind of a sector in the domestic sphere to make a difference?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, um, on some level it's marketing or, or like harnessing existing market forces to achieve social good. I mean, I think that's um, at its core what it is. It's, I mean, it's really difficult to sustain something if you are manufacturing a market for it. Um, I mean, if you're not able to tap into something that already exists, then not only do you have to sustain the service, you have to sustain the market too. And it's just artificially, you can only inflate that so long. So um, for better or worse, I mean, I think there are good um, discussions to be had about if that if the structure itself is the right one, but this is the one we've got to play with. Um, So within that space, um, finding ways to tap into existing markets and using those to spin off um, the kind of social change that we wanna see, it's the most likely to be sustainable because it doesn't require um, inflating or deflating anything else that already exists.
0: Well, there's a comment that just came in I want to bring up. Tammy said big brothers and sisters would love to offer mentors to the children of the moms that you serve. Thanks Tammy. Really appreciate you bringing Absolutely.
1: that up. Absolutely. Yeah, I've got to, I'm going to screen grab that name. Um you got you're it. here for me tomorrow. <laughs>
0: <Got it>. um, <laughs> thank you Tammy. So, uh, you know, when we talk about social enterprise, one of the things I think that most people in the world consider as normative is that if I want to do something good, I got to do it outside of business. Yep. If I want to do something good, not just giving charity. If I do well in business, I can give charity. But if I want to do something like end homelessness or create living wage jobs for low income moms coming out of shelters or transitioning, well, I better go start a nonprofit and I better raise donations and I better write grants and like the whole old school non-profit <laughs> train, right? Yep. But I know you and I are super excited about this idea of social venturing or social entrepreneurship, and I think the grooming project is a fantastic example of that. And uh, I'd love to know what you think the advantages are. You know, why would somebody start a social enterprise rather than starting another nonprofit yep. um, in the traditional vein?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think I'll work backwards um, because I think the end goal is 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 at least should be obvious and that is that the the need um that is addressed and i think there are very few opportunities um the way that we currently run kind of what we call the business sector um to really make that change um and for me it's it's more like my own personal reason for it is I mean, I'm super fortunate. I've never been rich. I didn't come from a rich family, but I've never had to worry about if the lights were going to be on or if there was going to be food. And the advantage that that gives anybody who's never had to worry about that, um, it feels like it's worth paying that forward uh, because that is just pure luck. Um, I, I think some of the advantages in the actual sustainability of the business are that one, it's easier to recruit employees. It's easier to recruit good talent Um, now this takes out, uh, this is just because there is a social cause tied to it. We get into pay scales. Um, you may start taking away some of that if you're not structured in a way where you can actually be competitive on the pay side. Um, but I found pretty consistently that, um, there is a built-in cause that feels worthwhile in a way that, um, some other jobs may not, if it doesn't feel like you're making a difference. So, um, I think that piece is an advantage. The other advantage is the capacity to, um, basically offer a similar service to what's already out there, but also cl- also be able to say that this is actually making a change or having an impact over here in ways that it wouldn't if you went to competitor X and got the same service or the same product. And I think giving people an opportunity to help without having to do anything different than they would have otherwise. Um, I think I've, I, I can't remember who coined this phrase, but slacktivism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Being Slack. able to,
0: I heard it first from the guy who started Tom Shoes, the idea of like slacker activism. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I completely ripped it off from him and I've used it every time. <laughs> I oh. have too, yeah.
1: Well, I'm glad I knew where I stole it from now because until this conversation- I maybe. Didn't maybe. I don't know
0: where it really came from. Yeah, I mean, if people have the choice to buy dog grooming services from somebody who is helping to create jobs in the community and help rescue families out of generational poverty and homelessness, or to go to just like, Whatever, not the dog on the big chain, but like just Petco without the additive, you know, I'm gonna choose Grooming Project or the Petco that hires from Grooming Project every single time. It's a no brainer. Yep. But it's more than marketing, though, isn't it? Right it there's is, a, yeah. there's like a mindset that leaders have. There's you know what we might call that social entrepreneurial mindset or that social venturing mindset that leads somebody, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit legal structure, which really doesn't matter. It leads somebody to start a business that's doing, you know, kind of one and one makes three. It's sort of more than the sum of the parts. What do you think are some of the key characteristics? uh, Because I know you mentor and you coach and you consult outside of the grooming project for social enterprises. And from what I know, I think you're working all the way from South Africa to Kansas (laughs) City, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. As strange as crazy as that sounds. Yes.
0: All right. So what are some, in your experience, what are some of the key characteristics or traits of that social venturing mindset of a social leader, Jared?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a big part of it is, is whatever that anchor is, the feeling um, and the belief that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, I, I mean, I think that that with that comes a sense of solidarity Um, And at least for me, right off the back of that is an understanding of how all of these things happen together, and none of this happens in a vacuum. So if you're doing something that benefits you personally, uh, and you're getting a lot of value out of that, um, that's great. Um, But the next consideration is, who else is being impacted by this thing I'm doing? And is that impact positive? Is it indifferent? Is it negative? And once you start getting into those second, third, and fourth tier impacts of, of what we're doing... Um, as individuals, then I think it starts opening up this, this deeper understanding of it's possible to do this kind of work in a way where more than just myself or select other few benefit. And I, it's, I think it's difficult to get there. I mean, we, we all drive out of self-interest to some degree. And so I don't think we, it's reasonable to expect people to let go of their self-interest entirely. Um, but I, I do think we can train ourselves and nurture ourselves and each other to be more mindful of, of the system's impact that we're having and that it is possible for all of us to win in this space. It's possible to do that thing that generates our own prosperity and our own happiness and still creates that opportunity for somebody else, too. Um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's enough to go around. There is. Uh, but it's difficult sometimes to get to get everybody on board with that idea.
0: So let's say Jared I'm not a social worker. I'm just, you know, working every day in a job and I don't own the company so I don't get to give away the money. I don't get to set the new product. You know, the mindset that you're talking about and and the inspiration that comes from the social enterprise sector, this purpose-driven sector. How do you think that somebody listening can incorporate the inspiration from what you're doing into their day-to-day life? Like what are a couple of tangible things that they might do?
1: Well, I, I mean, this, I could go uh, probably too many directions here. One that uh, becomes to mind right now is something as simple as if you are an expert in your trade, um, there is probably an opportunity to, to offer that trade and you don't have to do it for free. I mean, some of the, the most helpful um, people that we have and partners that we have, we have an auto mechanic who fixes a lot of cars for the, the students that we have. And I mean, we've and this, he's out of the generosity, he's donated some of those services, but wow. we pay him a lot too. Um, I mean, anytime that we've got emergency assistance funding for transportation and a car needs fixed, um, he's getting that business. And um, when he uh, allows us, we will let everybody know how good of a guy he is. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think that's also where it gets a bit tricky because uh, there are a fair number of people in the space who don't want any credit for it. Um, which is right. great. But it also um as far as a social business goes, it doesn't work quite as well if it's hidden. <laughs> so um, there I mean it's a give and take, right? But yeah, I mean if you have a skill set that um is help I mean, that all of our I mean, we're all the same, right? We're all experiencing the same stuff at different scales. And so that probably fits into one of these social causes that you're interested in, even if you don't um have a whole bunch of money to give away.
0: What would be another way, again, let's say I don't have a trade like that. How what if I try to adapt this social entrepreneurial mindset, how else could I bring that into my own life and work in order to lead with greater social impact? Like what are what's something else I could do if I'm listening?
1: Um, I think maybe take your course.
0: Um, no, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. back to the grooming project <laughs> yeah Thank yeah that. <laughs> no, that's, it looks socialleader.org that's great no but I, I mean look you are an expert in social entrepreneurship you're also a licensed master social worker so you come from like the therapeutic background and you have all the inspiration of that but you're obviously also involved in business and and you know getting endeavors off the ground. And I think people are inspired by by what you're doing. If there were like two or three things that maybe in your own life that are practices that help you sharpen the saw, keep you focused on that purpose-driven perspective, what are two or three things that you do to help keep you focused on that social impact in your work, no matter what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, some of for me, uh, one of the the most helpful things um, to keep, keep kind of keep me moving that direction is um, kind of forcing myself into situations that are that I just find uncomfortable. I um, mean, because it forces me to learn something new, and I, yeah, I mean, I it's that I mean that's a bit vague. Obviously, I mean, I can give you some specific examples um, of just just trying something different or exposing myself to a new group of individuals that I hadn't um, been around because inevitably there's a whole bunch of there. I mean, there are ideas, there are concepts. I learned something uh, about what somebody is experiencing in the world right next to me that I didn't even know was going on. Um, And so, I I mean, I think that like constantly finding ways to make yourself uncomfortable, um, safe ways to make yourself uncomfortable is just a way to expand that understanding of there are needs all around us that we we just that we, maybe we could help with and maybe we're involved in something that we could spin off, but we didn't even know that it was over there. I mean, on some so level, get, that's what get, the green project, project is for me.
0: So get comfortable with the uncomfortable and practice that in safe ways with good boundaries in your own life. What else are you doing that helps to kind of keep that purpose-driven um, perspective sharp in your own life? That's a great one.
1: Yeah, I think the, the idea of, I mean, I know this is a cliche, but the, the searching for triple bottom lines, um, finding, taking whatever you're doing right now and uh, looking at it from a couple of different perspectives, again, who it's benefiting. Um, and then are there other opportunities? I mean, I think we get kind of stuck in binary solutions. It's got to be this or it's got to be this. Mm-hmm. And there's generally in a, in a, in some type of adjacent strategy that, that very well could be just as effective. We just haven't thought about it that way. And right. I, think, I think one of the things that, uh, for better or worse, has happened during this pandemic is we saw some local organizations repurpose overnight um, in ways that they probably never intended to do. And, yeah. and some of them had some really big impact really quickly. Um, will they continue to do that after the, the pandemic need is gone? That's anybody's guess. But I mean, I think that it, what it does prove is that it seems like a long slog Um, but with the right, the motivation and the understanding that there is actually a solution here that maybe wasn't seen before, that it can actually happen pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Well, let me jump back as we close up. There's another question that came in from uh, Rick and Angela. Um, They said, what's the best way to get connected as a volunteer? I'm assuming she's talking again about the grooming project, for instance, helping with caring for or working with the children while a mom's being trained. You know, what's, What's a great way to get connected with the Grooming Project?
1: Um, they can email or call me directly uh, if you. Okay. I am mean, happy to give that out, like right now. Or sure. go um, ahead.
0: What's the best way to get a hold of you?
1: So, um, J Sanderson, J S A N D E R S O N. Okay. At epickc.org. org. So E-P-E-C-K-C.org. org.
0: And we'll make the, we'll make sure to get that in the show notes as well as the Grooming Project's website, also. Well, look, thank you so much, Jared. Thank you for being a social leader. Thank you for the work that you do with Natasha and Epic and the Grooming Project. Thank you for the consulting work that you're doing uh, in the social enterprise sector. I know you're passionate about it. And I know you and I both believe that the future of capitalism, sort of that emerging fourth sector of capitalism, as it's been called, is not just a purpose-driven business given from charity, from its excess, but really really businesses where the social priorities are baked into the cake, where you're doing good while you're doing well. And, and I know you and I are both excited about that. I think the grooming project is a fantastic example of that. So... Once again, thank you so much for coming on the Social Leader Podcast today, and I hope to have you back again sometime soon.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Father Justin. I, I appreciate the work that you do. I've always enjoyed um, talking with you and uh, wish you the best and uh, would certainly encourage everybody uh, listening or who hears this to support reconciliation services. I mean, they do some really incredible things, uh, and they're working in an area of the city that doesn't get nearly enough attention. Um, and I, I shudder to think um, what that 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 neighborhood and that area would look like without them there. So thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Jared. I really appreciate the kind compliment. Hang with me and we'll be right back. Well, everybody, uh, thank you again for spending yet another podcast with me, another 40 minutes talking about social leadership. You know, every single one of these shows, I try to bring you somebody who brings a part of their um, life And their passion to bear in the social leadership vein. Somebody who represents a part of social leadership, like Jared, is a great example of somebody who's actually working with Natasha in the Grooming Project, running and building a fantastic Kansas City entrepreneurial endeavor, a social enterprise called the Grooming Project. It's a fantastic work. You should check it out. But Jared also does a fantastic job of really thinking critically and doing consulting, like I said, all the way from from South Africa to here, in order to advance the work of equity, in order to advance the work of making a greater social impact and has dedicated his life to that. If you are inspired by that, and if you wanna learn how to do more of what Jared and Natasha and so many others in our city and and those that I've had on the show are doing, then I do wanna invite you to go to thesocialleader.org, check out the brand new e-course that I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, it is, believe me, it is going to give you a cutting edge on getting started. Whether you are a programmer and you're a student and you just got out of school or whether you're the CEO of a company or a nonprofit, or if you're a volunteer and you just wanna have a better understanding, the Social Leader Essentials eCourse is gonna help teach you that social venturing mindset. It's gonna help you to root out bias in yourself and in your team and figure out how to manage bias. And it's gonna also teach you how to be trauma-informed as a leader, how to bring all of the awareness that you need uh, in, in order to not do more harm and not cause more trauma when you're working in communities that are working uh, under traumatic conditions. Frankly, especially now because of COVID and the pandemic, most of us know somebody who's struggling with trauma and depression. So these are skills that we can all use. Go check out the Remember when you enroll in that course, a hundred percent of the proceeds from the social leader essentials course, go to fuel the work at reconciliation services here at 31st and truce. Well, thanks again for tuning in and listening to the social leader podcast. By the way, I think this is episode 30. I'm kind of blown away that we're actually at 30. So thanks for hanging with me. And I look forward to having you back on the next episode. Until then, let's together learn how to lead with greater social impact.